Welcome to your exclusive look inside the Campbell Women's Basketball Program. I'm Evan Budgerman, your host and play-by-play -play broadcaster for the team. We're pumped to pull back the curtain on this podcast and share some fascinating details about the entire history of this program. It dates all the way back to 1972. We're going to explain what makes this group special. What better way to start this podcast than by speaking to the Big South Hall of Famer and the Campbell Hall of Famer, Coach Wanda Watkins. She played for the inaugural head coach, Sandra Peabody, and her mentor, Betty Jo Clary, as the first female scholarship athlete in school history. We talk about what makes Campbell special. What makes Wanda's story special is she was a graduate assistant for the program and turned that into a 35-year head coaching career with 549 wins, among the 30 best ever in women's college basketball, and a couple of conference titles. We will definitely talk about those tournament titles as well. Miss Watkins is now a prominent voice in the conference and in the sport of women's basketball as the senior women's administrator here at Campbell. She's also part of the executive board for the conference office. As you'd imagine, and for many who know Wanda, she'll find a way to stay active and engaged as a leader in this industry. Our conversation starts back in 1975 when the very athletic, very talented South Johnston High School guard moved across the county here into Harnett and enrolled at Campbell, leading to an incredible legacy for this program in so many ways. We're going to touch on a bunch of those standout moments for Coach Watkins, and with that, we hope you enjoy our first episode featuring the Hall of Fame coach, Wanda Watkins. Well, you know, I always wanted to be a coach, and um, so that meant I needed to be a physical educator and um, a teacher, which I, you know, always consider myself a teacher, even as a coach. And, um, you know, I, I, I was fortunate. I had some other opportunities. I know I've, I've been recruited a lot by Peace Junior College, and then um, at the time, Norman Fence was there. And Dr. David Frazier was the president, and he would even come to my games. Dr. Frazier and our family became good friends. He was such a great gentleman, and um, he was the president at Peace. And um, and then a gentleman by the name of Robert Doak was at NC State, and I can remember the day that I got the letter from him where he offered me a full scholarship and told me all I have to do is pay for my room key. Um. And, but, again, this was a little bit different of an age before um, before NC State really moved on the national prominence level, so to speak. I mean, it was, I think, the next year that Kay Yow came to NC State. So, had I gone there, I would have actually played for Kay Yow the second year I would have been there. Uh, and then that year was the year that they went to the NCAA, that they joined the NCAA. Before that, all these universities were all clumped together, and we played each other, like Campbell and NC State and Carolina. They were all on the same level. Uh, but when the NCAA came along, all that changed. And um, and and so um, it was a it was something that I gave a great deal of thought to. But Campbell had been recruiting me, and Coach Peabody had been over recruiting me, and. I had been to campus um, on a few occasions, and Campbell offered me an opportunity 
that I didn't have at NC State. Had I gone to NC State, I would have had to major in recreation. They didn't have a physical education major. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt I wanted to be a teacher and a coach. So that place into my decision of coming to Campbell. I like the small town atmosphere in Lewis Creek. Uh, I had grown up a country girl, you know, in Johnston County, even though I went to a very big high school, high school at the time at South Johnston. And so um, I decided to come, come to Campbell, and it's a decision that I've never really regretted. I think it was one of the best decisions in my life. Uh, that I came here and I was able to get a degree and pursue what I, you know, what I love doing. It, it's neat too because this program has only had four coaches, and I know you were such a huge part of that. But you also got recruited and got to play for the two coaches before you, in, in Sandra Peabody and and Betty Joe Clary. So I, I'm curious, Coach Watkins, what that experience was like of playing college basketball for these two pioneers of the sport, like you mentioned, who were kind of in the transition period, making women's basketball a Division One sport at the highest level, and what that whole experience was like for you? Well, you know, I have a lot of respect and admiration for Coach Peabody and Coach Clary. I actually ended up playing for Coach Peabody only for a year, and then I, I played for Coach Clary for three years. Um, but those ladies were, you know, I mean, they were definitely pioneers, and had a lot to do with laying a strong foundation in the program here. They were hard workers who spent much of their day teaching classes, and uh, they were wonderful teachers in the physical education department, both of those ladies, and they spent a big part of their day teaching. You know, they didn't have the opportunity to basically predominantly just coach they were teaching the majority of the day and then they'd have practice at the end of the day and those were the days where you just did it all you know you mopped the floor yourself you uh, you know you got everything ready for practice and you probably got the water bottles and everything else and you drove the team wherever they went and you know they were in the sport because they had a real love for the sport not to say that I don't as well but you know, to do what all they did. And there was not a lot of money in coaching back in the days that they were involved in coaching either. And um, it, came, it, it became a much more profitable uh, career on down the road. Even for me, it was not that lucrative when I, you know, when I first started coaching. And so everybody did it because of the love of the game and the opportunity to teach and have an impact on young people. And so I tipped my hat to those ladies, and they were wonderful role models for me to follow, and uh, I learned a lot from them. I know you said you had the idea or at least the thought of wanting to be a coach when you were playing. Did that sort of develop your, your final year? And for people who don't know, you unfortunately were hurt much of your senior year. Was that time maybe where you sat back, and I know you also were a GA for a little bit, but maybe just took in that whole coaching or at least being from the sideline point of view that developed your interest in coaching? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it just I think it just set me on fire even more so. I knew, I knew early on in life that I wanted to – coaching was something I wanted to pursue. I mean, I had loved athletics. I've been involved in the sports that they had for females when I was coming along. You know, in high school, I think we had volleyball and basketball, and that was it. You know, I played summer softball and played in all these summer leagues and pickup leagues and played up in Raleigh. 
played softball for years, uh, even after I started coaching at Campbell. I just I had a love for sports, and it was something that I knew I wanted to do. But that, I was injured my senior year, broke my wrist, and uh, I actually went to Duke, and they made me a rubber cast, which was unheard of back in the day. And uh, I had a trainer who was working with our program then that was wonderful, and he had a connection with a gentleman at Duke. And they took me up there, and they made me a rubber cast. And I was actually able to play in the last few playoff games. Uh, but it was tough because I was always one they fouled, you know, because it was, you know, they fouled a girl with a broken arm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so challenger to shoot, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had to really practice so that I could play in that. I spent a lot of hours practicing in that. But it just kind of gave me a, a more of a burning desire to even more so uh, pursue it. You know, I learned, I learned a lot, like a lot of players do when they're on the bench and they're watching coaches and, and um, kind of taking a little bit of a student coach role. Uh, when you're doing that, I learned a lot from Coach Claire when I was doing that, and she was a great teacher of the game. And, uh, I, you know, I just owe a big, huge debt of gratitude to her for, for helping me along and then giving me the opportunity to work alongside of her as a GA because at the time uh, when I graduated, she had already hired a GA to work in her program before I decided that I wanted to pursue graduate school. I just I decided that in the summer after I graduated from undergrad. You can imagine I was pretty indecisive at that <laughs> point in time in my life. And I had, had thought I'd probably just go into, you know, a high school program and start coaching. And then I decided, you know, I think I want to get more involved in college athletics. And so I called Coach Clary up, and she was like, yeah, you can work alongside of us. I've already hired my GA. So the first year, I kind of worked part-time and did that on the side. And um, I worked alongside of the late Candy Fox, who was a legendary coach who ended up leaving Campbell after she got her master's going to Clinton High School and, and winning a few state championships down there. So I learned a lot from Coach Clary and from Candy, Coach Fox, and uh, – it was just a great opportunity for me. So, Coach, one of the stories that I think relates to a lot of people who are just out of college or relatively young that I, I love about you is, so 1981, you spent a couple years as a GA, and all of a sudden you, you walk into the AD's office, Wendell Carr, who, who was a huge pioneer in developing the sport, especially at Campbell, and, and you say, hey, you know what, I've been a GA. I want to be the head coach now of this program. What was the moxie like of you to walk into that room and, and take me through that conversation? Well, it took me a while to get my courage to go in there because I thought he was going to think I was crazy. You know, I was really, I was really worried um, that he was going to think I was too young. And you know, I was twenty-one, like uh, twenty-one year old at the time, who thought you know she was ready to conquer the world. And uh, but I finally got up my courage and my nerve, and I can remember talking to my parents about it and, and my. My dad and my mom encouraged me just to go talk to him, sit down and talk to him about it, just see what he said. You don't have anything to lose. And so I went in and I told him, I'm like, I know you're, you may think I'm crazy, but I want to come in and talk to you about the possibility of maybe applying for this women's basketball position. I don't know how you feel about it. And, um, oh, my gosh, he just welcomed me with loving arms, told me to sit down. He was like, you're the person I want for the job. Uh, I think you do a great job. He just had a lot of faith in me at a very early age in my life. And, you know, I'll always be grateful to Coach Carr for giving me the opportunity that ended up being an opportunity for a lifetime for me. It was just wonderful. 
I, I was going to say 35 years later, I think he made the right call uh, letting a young Wanda walk and slide into that role. But that, that was an awesome story. And one of the things that you've always said with your coaching philosophy, even from when you started, is you found that people who know how much you care about them, this, this is speaking to players and support staff, they will do anything for you. And, and for someone who'd been around the creek for, gosh, 30-plus years, how did that dynamic play out for your, for you on a, on a year-in and year-out basis, you know, getting to know these players and having them be able to trust you? Knowing that you're cared about is what anybody in life looks for. You know, especially a young whippersnapper coming off to college, scared half to death, leaving their family for the first time. You know, they're looking for somebody that they can trust and confide in. And so um, we kind of operated like an extended family. I never tried to be anybody's mother or anything like that. But, you know, we were like an extended family, and I wanted players to know that we were in it as a family and that we were in it together. You know, and if anybody on the team ever got in trouble or anything happened that, you know, was tough on them. I go in and I talk to the team about it most of the time and say, you know, you got to put yourself in their shoes. Uh, this could be you down the road. You know, we want to learn from this, but you also want to realize that we're a family and we want to keep this amongst our family and deal with it as a family. And I just try to instill that in them you know, you just don't get anywhere in life without other people, regardless of how hard you work, how talented you may be, uh, or how knowledgeable you may be. You can't go anywhere without, you know, having people help you. And so we kind of operated that way. I mean, I expected the players to come into my office once a day. They knew if they didn't come in or come by my office and at least poke their head in once a day, I was going to be going to them at practice that day to find out what was going on. You know, I haven't seen you today. Don't forget to poke your head in here. I promised your moms and daddies I was going to look out for you. And I could see their faces when they'd pop in the office oftentimes, and I could tell you know, maybe I knew them well. They knew me well. We could look at each other and tell if something else was going on if we needed to sit down and talk. And I tried to make sure I gave them that time, even when I was coaching. To me, it was a big part of my job. We wanted to win ball games, and nobody wanted to win worse than I did. But in order to do that, they had to understand that I was in it for them and that I was there for them. And I hope that everybody that plays when they felt that to a certain degree. No, no doubt, Wanda. And I'm curious about developing a coaching philosophy because we, we see a lot of young coaches, whether they get promoted or they move up from a player to a coach. What is that process like from your standpoint of learning how to coach? Because everyone at home can sit there and say, oh, I know how to sub this player in, or I can manage minutes or run an offense or, or what have you. But when did you start to feel comfortable, you know, starting in 81 and kind of moving forward of, hey, I, I really feel comfortable with this whole coaching idea and, and how to operate at that level? I think it really, I'll be honest with you, I think it took me about 10 or 15 years to really get in my own self. Um, I think everybody, when they first start coaching, they have a tendency to coach like they were coached and they have to find themselves in the process, you know, and, and for me, it was a little bit of a gradual process, and I had to, um, I just had to find myself along the way. And fortunately for those first few teams that I coached, they were patient. They tolerated me well. Um, 
I was probably a little more spicy back when I first started than I was when I stopped. Um, but I, I, I think that for me, my philosophy was something that I never really changed my core values or the things that were really important to me. But um, in coaching, but I, uh, I, I think it took me a while to get into my true philosophy. One of the things I, I, I want to ask you about, because I experienced it firsthand, is the Wanda Watkins travel rule. So we, we had a uh, athletic trainer, Craig Oates, a few years back, and he told me on the first road trip, he said, when you travel with Wanda Watkins, if you're not there 15 minutes early, that bus is halfway to Asheville or wherever we're playing that game. So was that something you kind of always had? And, and, and if you can remember, were there any good stories of, of leaving a player or, or things like that? Yeah, you know, it was something I was just – it was just something deep-rooted in me. I just felt like we needed to teach our players discipline. And to me, punctuality is all part of being disciplined. And, you know, if you can't be on time, you're saying to the other person that your time is more valuable than theirs. And so – I don't know. It was just something that was deep-rooted in me. My parents taught me some great core values as I was growing up that I'll always be grateful for. And so, um, you know, I wanted a player to make sure at the latest you got to practice 15 minutes before practice. And, I mean, you were on the floor 15 minutes before practice. That means you had to get your taking and everything else done. And if we were supposed to leave at 1.30 uh, to take off, the bus pulled out at 1.30 regardless of who was on there or who wasn't on there. And I can remember a story once where Denise Ford, who's in who's in the Campbell Hall of Fame, and I, I love I love her to this day. Uh, we still keep in close contact with each other, even though she's in New Jersey. Um, but Denise Ford, who was our MVP that year, we were going to UNCW, and everybody was on the bus. And I looked at the driver and I said, or at least I thought everybody was on the bus. I looked at the driver and I said, it's time to go. And somebody on the back of the bus said, well, Denise is not on here. And I was like, well, it's time to go. And I told the driver, you know, and I said, it's time to go. Let's go. So we headed we headed down to UNCW, down to Wilmington, and um, we, we actually left Denise. And uh, I didn't know at the time that she was in what was the old post office, which is the annex right there next to Carter Gym checking her mail. But I'm not sure it would really matter at the time to me because she was not where she was supposed to be. So anyway, make a long story short, we started in Wilmington, and the kids on the bus were giving me every excuse in the world about they needed to stop to go to the bathroom. By the time we got started good, and it was back before we had cell phones, so they were wanting to stop so they could get on a pay phone and try to call her to figure out how they were going to get her to Wilmington. She was our MVP, and they knew they didn't want to play without her. So anyway, we stopped in in uh, Clinton and ate at a restaurant, and they were they didn't half of them didn't even eat. They were out there on the phone making arrangements with Denise on how she was going to get to the game. They wouldn't speak to me. They were all really mad at me because <laughs> I had left her, and and so we ended up getting to Wilmington. And uh, right right before we went out to warm up, Denise came in and she had hitched a ride with Todd Scarborough, the late Todd Scarborough, who was traveling on a university band uh, to take pictures down at UNCW and do some video down at UNCW that night. Well, the back of the van didn't even have a seat. So Denise laid in the back of the van with his equipment and made the ride. Todd took her to Wilmington, God bless his soul. 
And so she got there right before warm-up. And, uh, and so I told the team, I was like, okay, I'm going to venture for the first half. But anybody that went to the trouble that she did to get down here, she's going to play in the second half. And um, it was a close game, but we ended up winning. And I'm not sure if we would have won that game if they hadn't all been so mad at me. And I can't remember how many points Denise scored that night, but she went in there and she was on fire and she was ready to go. Coach, I'm very curious because – in women's college basketball, like you had mentioned, a lot of schools are playing at either the NAIA level or it wasn't as structured as we see in today's game where every conference, for the most part, is Division One, and, you know, they compete for an NCAA tournament. So let's fast forward to the mid-'80s, kind of 86, 87, and this conversation of the Big South sort of begins, and Campbell was one of the founding schools in that conference. You guys were a huge part of that as well. Take me back to that time of – when these conversations are, are coming around and maybe what your perspective was on it as a coach saying, hey, I want to be Division One, I. I want to compete with the Radfords and, and with the Coastals of the world and how that all kind of unfolded for you guys. Well, that's when everything changed for us. I was one of the greatest decisions that Campbell, that Coach Carr, you know, he was a huge part of, of, of us becoming a part of a conference. Now, you know, men played all those years as an independent in the NCAA. And then um, without conference affiliation, and, you know, that's tough because you're having to travel all over the country and play all these big guys, big timers, who, you know, they're the only people you can get games with. And, and so it was really tough for them. So it was a great, great move for Campbell. It gave us an opportunity not to have to be an independent and beg for ball games. Uh, even when we were in the NAI, it was tough sometimes getting getting games uh, because we weren't in a conference. And you know, I mean, I was whew, it was hard getting just getting games. Can you imagine not having those built-in eighteen or twenty games in a conference, and you're having to find those games? It was difficult, and and so we were all, we were all so excited about it. Coach Carl was a huge pioneer in making this happen. He was a big, big, um, you know, he, he, he was a very, very influential person in the conference in making this happen. We were a charter member of the Big South Conference. And when we became the Big South, part of the Big South Conference and went to Division One, that was a tremendous move for us athletically. And it was a wonderful move for us in women's basketball because now we belong to a conference where we had a built-in number of games. It was a league that we were very successful in. Uh, we won our first championship in 89, and at the time, we didn't get an automatic berth. So can you imagine winning your league title and then not going anywhere? And that and that's how it was because we hadn't earned an automatic berth. Even though we were in the Big South Conference, we didn't, we didn't have an automatic berth yet. We had to spend X amount of years in there until we got that automatic berth. So that was a huge difference. Uh, you know, going in the locker room of the 89 championship team, who was elated and very excited, don't get me wrong, but in going in the locker room of the 2000 championship team that knew they were going on to the big dance. But it was a, it was a great move for Campbell. A lot of hard work and energy and, and dedication went into making that happen. And Wendell Carr was a huge, huge factor in, um, in moving us in a very good direction. No, absolutely, Coach. And 
one of the fun things to kind of watch unfold in those early years, probably the first five or six years of the Big South, was the budding rivalry between Campbell and, and Radford in these conference tournaments. And I know it still gives you some nightmares and some fun moments, you know, all these years later. But what was it like to kind of have that 1A and 1B team? And you guys met six straight years in a conference final, you know, back and forth at different places. And take me through some of the things that stood out to you about playing that that one big rival every year and, and trying to win a conference title, like you mentioned. Well, I remember the first time I remember the first time we beat them uh, was in Carter Gym, I believe, and um, how excited we were because Ralph Sampson's sister Joyce was the center for Radford at the time, and she was probably about six four. I'm gonna say roughly about six four, and um, so she was. I mean, she she wasn't a big. She was just a tall, lanky player. She built a lot like Ralph tall and lanky, but I can remember just how excited we were after we won that game. I mean, we thought we had done something big, and we had at the time. And uh, Rapid was a huge rival. They were uh, a well-provided-for program at the time that they came into the league. They were they were probably the, the program that everybody was chasing at the time that we came into the league. Um, they, their, their resources were abundant at the time. And, and, um, I think we were probably playing with a lot of less scholarships and stuff than they were at the time. And all that changed over time, you know, and, and, and it took time for all that to change, but we had some great robberies with them and it was un- more uncommon than not that we were meeting them in the championships, championship games. And, and, uh, they got the best out of us more times than we did them. But I, but I tell you, when, when we won it in 89, it was, you know, it was, it was quite a celebration and it was at Raptors when we won it, which made it even bigger. The only downside to it when we won it was they had a huge snowstorm like they usually did during the conference tournament. And a lot of our people couldn't get up there and they had to listen to it on the radio. We kind of felt like when we left Bradford that night that we had painted the town orange and we didn't have a single paintbrush in our hands, but we felt like when we won that championship at Bradford, we had kind of painted the town orange when we were going out of there that night. So um, just really great rivalry uh, with Charlotte and Curtis and uh, Lizzie was up there as well. Lizzie LeConte, uh, I can't remember his last name right now. I'm going to have to cut this one. I'm sorry, Evan. Um, but he, it, it was a great rivalry that we had with them, and and I think it's still a great rivalry to this day. Um, two really good women's basketball programs that you know the players were friends and had great friendships. But when they hit the court that night it, against each other, it was everything was big. I want. I was going to say as well because you go back to last year's Big South tournament when Campbell and Radford fittingly met again in the finals up at Radford. Um, I, I believe this is right. You and Coach Curtis uh, got a couple uh, basketballs on the court and, and took pictures together, right? So a chance to kind of meet up again and talk about all those great memories. Yeah, we did. It was fun. You know, I have a lot of respect for Charlene. She's done a lot for the game and over the years and. Uh, just having great respect for her. It was good just to get together and reminisce. And I can remember one of the pictures we took. We had a basketball, and it was like we were fighting over who was going to take the basketball from the other one. And we got a big chuckle out of that. 
No, that's what's great, Coach. And I know now, all, all these years later, that's one of the things that every time we talk in the McKay house, you always mention Campbell must beat Radford on a yearly basis. You know, whether it's Mike McGuire coaching or, or Charlene Curtis, that's always in the top of your mind. So I, I enjoy touching on that. I, I wanted to ask you too, Wanda, because you were here at Campbell for so long and got to coach alongside in the same general area as some legends. You know, Westmore at uh, Tennessee Chattanooga at the time, Kay Yao at NC State for all those years. You know, Lynn Agee at UNC Greensboro, who coached 25, 30-plus years. Tara Vanderveer, Pat Summit, some of the icons of women's college basketball. I know you wouldn't necessarily put yourself in that discussion because of how humble you are, but what was it like just year in and year out competing against some of these all-time greats in, in college basketball and, and, and sort of, in a large sense, growing the sport from when you took over in the 80s to even t- still to this day? Yeah, well, you know, the legends like Pat and Tara and Sylvia Hatchell, uh, you know, and Kay, all those legends in the sport, I mean, they started, when they started it, they started about the same time I did, and, you know, they were driving the buses and station wagons and stuff like that, getting players to games and trying to uh, find ways to buy uniforms and it, it was not a glamorous thing back in the day when we all started. But it was great having those role models to look up to, you know, and and learn from and just see what they did for the sport of women's basketball. And uh, because, you know, a lot of people coach, but a lot of people don't coach and stay in it a long time because it is a... Uh, it's all encompassing. You know, it, it, it's, it, it, it's pretty life encompassing. It, it, it involves a lot. And, and so the names that you mentioned along with, you know, Sylvia Hatchell, Nancy Wilson, who was at the college of Charleston, went on to, to the university of South Carolina and coached. I mean, they were like, uh, people that I watched just, grow into the sport and do so much for the sport and then experience some great success in women's basketball. And they are true, true, true legends. You know, Jody Conrad at the University of Texas, who I had so much respect for. I never knew her personally, but I watched her program just grow into this tremendous Vivian Stringer. Um, There's so many that stayed in it for so long. Um, who really, truly cared about the sport. And you know they did. They started long before there was big-time money in it, you know. I, I actually and, just um, this summer got to watch the, the Women of Troy documentary where you see USC and Louisiana Tech, these powerhouses in the early 80s, kind of putting women's basketball on the map a little bit from a television standpoint. And and just seeing that, and I know that was kind of right in the, the beginning or the – you know, the opening of your career in the, or in the early 80s, how, how much fun was it watching these tr- these tremendous players and, and now a lot of them in the coaching world or in the WNBA de- developing their career and, and really getting things started in, in the peak of women's basketball in, in the mid-80s? Oh, yeah. It was great. You know, because before the exposure came about, basically what you had was you had little girls growing up with male role models in sports. You know, and I was one of those. I was a little girl that grew up admiring Charlie Scott, Dick Grubar, um, Rusty Clark, and, you know, the guys in Chapel Hill. You know, I, and they were like, the, that's who you looked up to because that's who you saw on TV. You, you know, there was no women's exposure at the time. 
And so with that exposure came opportunities for little girls to grow up uh, like I did, but the difference was they had some female role models. And I think you've probably heard me tell the story before. I remember the year I went to the Final Four, and the first time I ever saw a little girl wear a basketball jersey that had the name of Rebecca Lobo on the back of it. And I can remember punching somebody beside me saying, oh, my gosh, I've lived my whole life to see that. You know, there's a little girl with a Lobo jersey on. And and a lot of that came because of the exposure that, I, I you know, was acquired through television. And a lot of that happened, didn't happen, until a lot of these programs joined up with the NCAA. And through the NCAA championships, all that happened. And that wasn't available before the NCAA made women's sport a part of their organization. And and that's when it all changed. And it's fun to, to just think about where the sport has come just, you know, in my lifetime. And I know a lot of people look at me and think I'm old, but I really don't feel like I'm that old. And to see the progress that's been made, you know, over the last 60 years, it's overwhelming just to see that. And I can remember looking back, I can remember being called in by Tom Collins, who was the athletic director, who did a, a great deal of providing equity with women's sports at Campbell. He really helped in that respect. And I can remember him calling me into his office and asking me, would you be willing to play a television game next year on your basketball schedule? We're going to have Channel 4 to carry one of your games if you'd be willing, but you're going to, you'd have to, would you be willing to do it if you had to play at 12 o'clock? And I remember very well my answer to him was, I would play at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning to give my team an opportunity to be exposed on television. And then that's when sports began, began to change even more for the better here at Campbell because now I would see people at church and places in the community where I would go. I mean, it wasn't uncommon at all for me to sit down in church on Sunday morning and somebody behind me tapped me before the service started to tell me that they had watched my team play the day before. And so there was an exposure that we'd never had before at Campbell. And, and really, back in the days when we first started television here, um, we probably had better television at the time, television exposure with some of the ACC women's programs because we were buying into Channel 40 and we were buying in and we were doing double headers, which I think was more less expensive for Campbell. But yet, at the same time, they, they brought us along with them in. And so it wasn't uncommon at all then for us to have three or four or five or six TV games. And at the beginning, they were delayed. You know, it would come on Saturday night if we played Saturday afternoon. Um, or, um, you know, it was just, it was a different, it was, it, but it was a different kind of exposure that got us out there and, and made people realize that hey, you know, they're doing some good things down in Campbell with their women's basketball program, too. And people that wouldn't have been to a game that got to see us otherwise. So I think television, uh, going to the NCAA first changed things for us with women's sports, having championships uh, in the NCAA, and then 
gradually getting the television exposure chain and, and the scholarships, which would come down the road as well. I remember when I took over, I think we had um, three scholarships, and I had to beg Coach Carr real hard to get the second half of the second one to make it a third scholarship my first year. So we were operating with about three scholarships, and we'd have about 15 players. No, it's certainly a, a different time now, just thinking about the scholarship structure and the TV deals. And I, what I really enjoyed, too, just kind of watching the development of the sport is seeing the highlights of Kim Mulkey at, at Louisiana Tech, this small point guard who was tenacious and, and, like yourself, a distributor of the basketball. And here she is now winning national titles at Baylor like it's like it's nothing. And, you know, kind of watching yeah. these, these developmental players who were so big in the sport, you know, seeing Muffet McGraw begin her career at Notre Dame and just, you know, ending on the coaching side a couple years ago. Uh, Wanda Watkins retiring from from basketball feeders back. You know some big names in the sport, and it's just so neat that these are people you grew up watching in the '80s and '90s, and and here they are now still doing it. Especially you know with the Westmores and, and people like that who are you know still dominating the sport, and and they've been at it for thirty plus years. Yeah, yeah. West is a great one. I never went anywhere recruiting that I didn't run into West. I mean, quite a worker and. I knew he was going to be successful when he went to NC State, and and um, yeah, it's it, it's been fun. It's been fun to watch that, and none of that would probably have even a lot of people wouldn't have even known about that had it not been for the exposure that's been provided now to the sport. So the old saying "We've come a long way, baby" is is definitely true. We've come a long way, and uh, I, I'm sure what's going to be really exciting to see where it goes in the next fifty years. Wanda, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your 2000 championship team in the TAC when you guys uh, not only won the conference tournament, but this was at a time when the, there was automatic qualifiers and your team got to play Duke in the NCAA tournament. So what was that moment like, not only from an exposure standpoint, but just from a, a satisfaction and being able to celebrate that championship season with that uh, 2000 squad? Oh, gosh, I remember it like it was yesterday. You know, I was sick the entire week. In fact, I had to see a doctor when we were down at Birmingham for the tournament. We played in Birmingham, Alabama, and Sanford and the, the Alabama schools kind of hosted the tournament. Bob Roller was the athletic director at Sanford at the time, too, by the way. But I, I, I had to see a doctor that week. I was so sick. By the end of the season, you know, you get so run down. But I just remember it like it was yesterday um, because – we were not really the favorite, you know. I think Georgia State was the favorite in in that game, and I remember uh, just going in as the underdog. And I can remember um, just the talk amongst people in town. Or we had a lot of people that went went down for the tournament, and I think the softball team was playing in the area, and the entire softball team was there. But we had we had a real good showing at the championship game. Uh, that day, and I think they actually had to stop the game because the storms were so bad down in Alabama. The uh, the arena we were playing in was leaking. Oh, my And they gosh. had to actually stop the game. I mean, it was raining so hard. They had tornadoes and were down that way and everything. And, and um, But our team really did not get off to a good start in that game. And we were down at halftime. And I just went in and just try to calm them down a little bit, reassure them that the pressure was on the other team 
and that we were going to go back out in the second half and we were going to take care of business. And let me tell you, boy, did they ever. I mean, it was a, we had such a great, talented team. I put that, that team up against a lot of teams in this country today. I mean, they were, they were really a talented team. And we got a lot out of Camardi in that game, obviously. You know, she was the kind of post player that you could just throw the ball up there somewhere near the rim and she'd go get it and stick it in. She had unbelievable hands, and she was quite an athlete. And she was playing with the point guard of Janice Washington, who could thread a needle like anything you've ever seen. So, but Washington hit some three-pointers. Emory hit, Carrie Emory hit some three, three-pointers. Uh, we had the Reddick twins. I remember Katie even hit a big bucket in the game, Lisa Rugg. It was just, it, the second half, it was like the whole momentum, the whole tide changed in the second half. And, uh, and so, you know, our kids really felt good about it because it was, it was very similar. I don't know if you remember the, the game that we came back to win in the conference tournament when Tanisha Baker was playing for us and, and Monique Spry and those guys, we came back and beat High Point in the semifinals. Uh, I think it was the semifinals. In, yeah, that was in the that was one of the largest it, it, comebacks in in your program history as well. Well, the, the 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 championship game in 2000 was very similar to that. I mean, we came from behind and and um, conquered that championship. But anyway, it was a great feeling, and the kids, you know, it was a great celebration. And then when they wouldn't let me forget that they they had said early in the year, coach, if we win that championship, win the championship this year. You're gonna give us a limo ride back to the airport. <laughs> well, I never promised. I never said yes, but they never let me live that down when they did. And lo and behold, when we got to the airport in Raleigh, they did go crazy because Tom had gotten a couple of uh, limo drivers. There was a, there was a couple of limo drivers that picked us up at the airport and brought us back to Bulls Creek. Well, then when we got to Bulls Creek. Dr. Wiggins had organized a posse of folks all in the community who were over in the student union who were there to meet us and throw us a big celebratory party when we got back. And so we celebrated all week, you know, and, and uh, we tried to work really hard at practice that week in preparation for the NCAA tournament. We knew it was going to be a big crowd when we got there. And, um, and, and so we had tried to prepare them for that. Um, it, there was also a lot of excitement built up throughout the week because one of their coaches had been a prior point guard for us, Shanta Tabern, who was on the coaching staff at Duke. And we knew all Coach Gaston course, We, I mean, we knew all their staff pretty well because we had such a close relationship with Shanta. We'd go up and see them and and um, get ideas from their their staff and what they did in their program. But anyway, that was built up in the papers really big uh, about Shanta was up there. She'd been a former camel. And, and so, you know, it, it there was a lot of hype in town and in Durham when we went up to play. And then uh, I'll never forget the crowd when we got there. Dr. Wiggins did an unbelievable job. I think they had seven or eight charter buses. Um, I think at least eight, probably. might have been more. Could have been 10 or 11, I don't know. There were over 5,000 people in Cameron that day, and 
we, you know, of course, we warmed up a little bit, and then we went down to the locker room. And when it was time to come out for the game, um, the kids went out of the locker room, and I would always go back and run to the bathroom real quick. And when they opened the door and went out, the last person went out, I was like, what is that? And somebody's like, somebody, one of the coaches came back, and they were like, oh, my gosh, Wanda, you're not going to believe it when you go out there. That was the crowd that you heard. And so it was a bit overwhelming to see that many people in Cameron and the majority of the people were from Bullish Creek. So getting the kids to calm down took till about half time. Okay. <laughs> and then I, I think we, you know, Cremorne wasn't feeling well in the game and, and she picked up three quick fouls. They, they had a player named Paris who Shanta had really programmed her in on April. And uh, she was guarding her, and she picked up three fouls, and a couple of them were offensive charging fouls. Um, Paris was a good defender. She was also a good actress, too. So she picked up three quick fouls in the, in the game, and uh, and it was tough. And she wasn't feeling well. She'd been in the infirmary all week. But we finally got going a little bit in the second half. But um, it was, uh, you know, it, it was a great opportunity. For us, we went into it with the intention to win the game. We didn't do we didn't do that. But I think just the experience that they acquired in getting there and working hard to try to win the game, even though we lost, um, develop caused them all to develop a relationship that a special kind of relationship on that team, and that team still is one of the closest knit teams. Uh, that that we had at Campbell. And I just think when you go through all the ups and downs that you do to, to win a championship, you got to have a little bit of luck along the way, too. It was a it, it was a good experience for our team. Uh, well, of course, we would love to have beaten Duke, but we felt like we went up there and we gave it our best shot. Coach, I think that's the greatest moment for any team is, is being able to compete at that highest, that truly highest level of an NCAA tournament, and I'm glad – you were able to experience it. I, I want to ask you about sort of the end of your career, and you fast forward to 2017, so not that very long ago. Um, you and, and Dr. Creed at the time, and, and of course the executive staff at Campbell, they go down for these yearly meetings for the Big South, and, and you got enshrined into the not only the Campbell Hall of Fame, but the Big South Hall of Fame. And, and I'm fascinated to know what that experience was like for you and how humbling it was to be listed among some of the great coaches uh, in the conference history. Well, you know, I, I was very humble by it. I still am. And I can remember telling Bob, um, you know, when, when he told me about the Campbell Hall of Fame, I can remember telling him, you know, there are a lot more people more worthy than I am. And, and uh, you know, I, I talked to him a little bit about Cromartie, you know, and, you know, Cromartie, Washington. I mean, there there have been some great, great, players in this program so I, but I was so so uh, just so humbled and honored and then to go down to the big south was cool was quite a touching experience for me because I remember the days when it all began to evolve and all the hard work and the endless nights and the excitement that Wendell would come back from all these big south meetings and talk about 
we're going to get in this league and everything's going to change for us and this is going to make a difference and and just being able to share a little bit of that with the folks who were honoring me at the Big South, just knowing and being being there and seeing how it all evolved and to what it's evolved, you know, into this day and age to be uh, in the Big South Conference and how far the league has come and all the calls put into it over the years. And I remember the days of Buddy Sasser when the conference first started and Dick Singletary and um, just, you know, a, a lot went into that as well as our athletic program at Campbell. So I was indeed honored and uh, still humbled to this day. Uh, I remember telling Kyle the same way, y'all must be in real trouble if you're calling me. You must be short people sitting there this year. <laughs> well, Coach, you know, 500-plus wins, and it really speaks for itself, regardless of the conference uh, amongst your years. My, my final question wanted to be, and I'm thinking back to your last year as the head coach, and just the amount of respect that the, the players, the program, and, and the band specifically had for you. I, I want to say there was like a, a – by game cheer just for Wanda Watkins from the Campbell band. I know they've been a, such a huge part of your experience over all these years. What was that relationship like with them and how much fun did you have interacting with those students over the course of so many years and, and having them kind of right by your side at the games? Oh, I loved it. I can remember, you know, when Jack Stamp, who was the first pet band director at Campbell, he was on campus last year. He was conducting when they opened the new center on campus. Um, and I, I can remember I ran into him, and it had been years since we had seen each other. And he said, I saw him at Starbucks, and he came up to me and started talking. And, and I said, he said, you don't know who I am, do you? I was like, you look so familiar to me. He said, why is Jack Stamp? And I was like, oh, and I just wrapped my arms around him. And gave him a great big hug because I remember the first time uh, my encounter with Jack Stamp. He was a lovely man, wonderful man. But I remember my first encounter with him was down at Fayetteville Cumberland Memorial Arena. And we played doubleheaders down there with our men um, back when, in my early days of coaching. And our game was going on. And then the men were going to play right after us with doubleheaders. Well, the pet band, Jack and his pet band, came in and they started tuning up during the latter part of our game. And then when our game was over, then they fired it up and they were playing for the men. Well, you know, I thought it was great they were playing for the men. But, Evan, you know me well enough. What You know, you would have probably predicted what I would do after our game was over. Went down and talked to the team. But then I went and I found Jack Stamp. And I told him I was like, you know, I think this is awesome that you're playing for the men. Have you ever thought about not tuning up for the men's game during our game and playing for us? You know, he said, you know, I never thought about it that way. And so we just drummed up a conversation. Well, the next thing you know, Jack's figuring a way that he's going to start playing for a few of our games. And that's kind of how it all started and how it all evolved. And then... Now, you know, it's unheard of if the women don't have the pet band at, at one of their games. And it was like that during my latter years, many, many of my years. And I really appreciated the pet band because I think because of the pet band, along with some other things that we do really well at Campbell, like the way we put on our games and 
the way, you know, they just take care of business here. Uh, but I really think that because of the pet ban, there people were fearful and envious of us. Oh, especially in Carter Gym, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, they blow the roof off that place. And, and you know, even in Gore Arena, there have been a lot of complaints about where our pet band sits. Is that the right place? Are you sure the league, they check the league rules to make sure they're sitting in the right place because <laughs> they do such a great job. And I always felt very appreciative of that because I knew what it was like to play a game without a pet band. And a lot of people, a lot of coaches that are coaching now don't understand what it would be like to play a game without a pet band because they always have the pet band. I knew what that felt like. And so I always tried to make sure our pet band was appreciated and felt my appreciation. You know, if we left for the tournament, I made sure I'd get them cupcakes. Or I'd, give, um, I'd give the pet band director some money so that he could buy them a Starbucks coffee or something on the way up there just so they would know that, I appreciated what they were doing. And they were like our sixth person. And I would be afraid to play anybody in our home facility if we had our pet band and our team together. Uh, I, I really felt that they were that important. So I enjoyed the relationship with the pet band directors over the year, years. And, you know, I, I, I can't, I just can't say enough about how important I feel like they are in the whole overwhelming atmosphere of college sports. And I, I was really honored that they had me go in and conduct at one of their concerts. Um, the year that I retired, they had me go in and conduct for the band that night at the concert, the fight song. And that was a big highlight for me as well. That, showed me that they appreciated me as much as I appreciated them. No, that was certainly well-received, I think, from both them and, and your appreciation. We could see it all the time when you were coaching, you know, early on in my career, so it, that continues today. Uh, Wanda, this has been awesome and, and so much to learn about both women's basketball as a sport and, you know, your 35 years here at Campbell and, and all those years later now with the administrative side, but uh, we really appreciate the time, and I know so many stories to tell. You can't get them all in, but uh, this has been great. Thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been fun going down memory lane.